This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Escaping Confinement. Off-book setups. Scooby-Doo Gaming. And Native American States. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But what's this? The door to the gaming hut is a giant iron door, and it's locked behind us. There's bars on the door. We are trapped. We're imprisoned. Trapped with Peter oh, Frampton. No. Peter Frampton will be coming alive forever, and I think we may be out of Doritos. Robin, we're captured and or imprisoned. Oh, no, we're helpless. Our whole... Our whole role-playing experience is ruined. We can't possibly do anything. Or can we? Or can we indeed. Uh, so a classic problem of, uh, of the role-playing game is that a staple of the adventure genre is that the hero gets captured, and then the hero uncaptures himself, uh, and usually secures some advantage in, in so doing, often having gathered crucial information. Perhaps he is lucky enough to have the villain monologue all of the details of his sinister plan, because, of course, he can't possibly get out of this uh, imprisonment. But maybe you just find a particular clue or, or a way out, or just something cool and exciting happens to you and, and fun is had. How rousing it is. Or but you rescue someone in formative exactly, from the next yes. There's all sorts of, uh, of uh, reasons why it is ultimately good for the character to get captured, but we, as players, and this segment is from the player point of view, are uh, often curl up in a little armadillo ball because we've had our agency taken away from us and we can't possibly imagine how we can... Uh, uh, follow in the footsteps of uh, 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 James Bond and uh, Green Lantern, Green Lantern and uh, Shadow and uh, Batman and whoever and else, Flashman, Flashman, uh, Harry Houdini and his adventures under the the pyramids. We can't possibly imagine possibly uh, getting away out of this. So this is what this segment is here to provide. So uh, first of all, we begin with the assumption that the GM 
has not intended to uh, ruin everything about his game by having you captured, but is waiting for you to get yourself uncaptured. And we're going to uh, run through a, a list of possible ways that you can get yourself uncaptured so that when this next happens to you, you will flash back uh, to this uh, episode. A, a, uh, a word balloon with Ken and Robin in it will appear over your character's head and you will start to run down the list of active things you can do to prove that you still have agency and herohood on your side, even though you've temporarily been captured inside a shiny, beautiful clue. So Ken, uh, start us off. What's a thing you can do when you, the character, has been captured? Find the toughest guy there and beat him down. That's the that's the word. That's what they tell you to do when you're in the joint. I'm sure it's probably pretty good advice when you're in uh, uh, role playing joints as well, because a uh, you got a fun combat. The GM gets a little time to to think about stuff, and you've immediately made allies from everyone that that guy was brutalizing in inside. Now, if you're you know uh, in solitary, that doesn't work, but I think in many cases you're captured with a bunch of guys or you're captured in a standard prison-y sort of in- environment. And then you have the same options that everyone in every prison movie has. You start building your network. You start uh, demonstrating your badassitude, which as a player character, of course, you possess. And you begin negotiating with the prison underground for the spell components that you need or uh, the ability to talk to the warden or whatever the next stage of your eventual release is going to involve. But it begins by making allies, and you make allies by beating up the worst offender, which also keeps the second worst offender off your neck. Right. So let's stick with that uh, set of assumptions, first of all, that you have, you and the rest of the players, uh, player characters presumably, have been uh, dropped into the prison genre for a length of time. And a great inspiration for this is the series of episodes in which the Sons of Anarchy characters uh, all go to jail together, and that uh, runs through, uh, the, the gamut of the, uh, prison genre tropes, but implies at the end that, uh, you know, the series hasn't turned into Oz. They're gonna get out again in several episodes. But this then enables you to, as you suggest, create a, a network of things. So that, uh, step one, either you need to just beat up a random guy in order to prove that you're tough and you're not a victim, or, uh, even more story-wise, it may well be that you have uh, voluntarily gone into this prison, although you're a player character in role-playing games, so probably not. But let's say you have. <laughs> it might not just be a random guy that you want to go fight, but the, the it's clear that the rival gang uh, or the people who are after you, that throwing them you in jail has only been step one. So if it's Knight's Black Agents and all of a sudden uh, the player characters are all uh, thrown in the hole in Bucharest, uh, you can be sure that the vampires are going to send their uh, gang of uh, either Renfields or just regular hirelings to come and wipe you out so that you may be looking at a series of combats that are going to occur in prison and that's the things that you are uh, in there to overcome them and then get the information out of them. So you may want to look for the biggest guy, or you might want to start asking around, who here is likely to be suborned by my enemies? So, Ken, what else are, are you going to do in the in the prison break 
uh, version of this. In the prison break version, again, if you're assuming, um, yeah, this one works even if it's just one of you, although one hopes that the GM has got, uh, plans as well for what to happen, that you're not just being sidelined, that, uh, you begin the prison break genre. You start looking for ways out. Uh, there ain't no one been put in a place no one can't break out of, as someone once said. So even if it's Alcatraz, even if it's the Gulag, people got out of Alcatraz and they got out of the Gulag. So you are, um, uh, you're looking for the way out and it may just just be, oh, they didn't count on me having an 18 constitution. I'll walk across the tundra. They didn't count on me knowing magic, so I can do this. The guy who designed the prison did not think he was keeping player characters in it. He thought he was keeping NPCs in it. And that's uh, the fatal flaw of everybody. And again, you have the same advantage there that you have over everything else in the world. You are the singular player character. You are thinking harder about the problem than everybody else in the world is because the GM is busy and has other stuff to do. So you should be able, given any prison situation, to start working it to, to your advantage. Now, if the goal is um, that you are Edmund Dantes and the story begins 20 years after, Maybe you say, hey, GM, am I Edmund Dantes? Does the story begin 20 years after? If so, can we fast forward to 20 years after and I'll just upgrade my character sheet like you want? Right. And if your GM is worth their salt, they're going to signal this. Yeah, right. Another uh, (laughs) bit of advice is, is in addition to find the biggest guy and punch him, uh, find the guy with the longest beard and befriend him. Yes. uh, Because he, at the very least, uh, knows what's going on in this uh, prison break environment. uh, And chances are... He's been digging a tunnel with a spoon mm-hmm. for uh, 19 years, and he's just at the point where he's about to break out. And so right. uh, the uh, uh, because the GM has at least thought of one possible way for you to get out. And, <laughs> and as is the case with all GMs everywhere, he has given this information to a bearded old man. Uh, the bearded old man knows uh, uh, what it is. The bearded old man might be the, the way that it is. And even if the uh, GM has... Uh, thought of something different. If you ask for the bearded old man and, or ask for, has it, who's the escape artist in this pr- place? Uh, again, assuming the GM is, is worth their salt. And, uh, if they listen to this show, by definition, they are. If not, tell them to listen <laughs> to the show. And tell them to back us on Patreon too. They're getting way too much free advice. Yes. Uh, well, one step at a time. All right. So they may be planning for you to just go through your cell and find the misaligned tile that comes out. And by the way, Go through your cell and look for the misaligned tile. Uh, but, uh, if you then say, oh, well, I need to, uh, I want to find the guy who's obviously the bearded guy who knows yep. everything and might be an escape artist. Chances are your GM is going to yes and you on that. Right. And so, and, and the broader uh, point, I guess, is give the GM something to y- yes and you on. Right. And if it's a, if, if it's a wartime uh, adventure and you're in a prisoner of war camp, uh, th- there is by definition an escape committee. And whether they're escaping the hated British uh, from a prison hulk in New York Harbor, they're escaping the Nazis, or whoever they're escaping, there's people whose job it is to have come up with an awesome way to escape that just needs two, maybe five people. People with magic powers and an 18 constitution. Yes, and uh, and that's true of space jail as well. Right. So, so yeah. But I do do agree with your notion to pixel bitch your cell. Yeah. Right? That do that. uh, Because at the very least, there may be an informative inscription in it, right? That may be why you're there is to read the fact that, you know, uh, you know, uh, Nicholas Flamel was held here or, or whatever. And that that's useful information. There may be a loose tile. There may be any number of, of fun things. And the GM in desperation may accidentally give you something that you can use. Um, when they say there's nothing here but rats and you're like, how many rats? Um, can I, uh, can I string them together and make a rat whip? And you're like, what? 
Yeah, I have a rat whip spell. It's right there. Oh, all right. You know, that's just the, 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 anything is something. And, uh, the, the cell contains at the very least, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the lived experience of, of being in prison, which is sort of the point of having you thrown in there in the, in the first place. But second, it probably contains, uh, clues or methodology or something. And you might as well pixel bitch it because then the GM feels there. They're, 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 um, becoming a useful member of the gaming group. They're examining the cell. That shows that they've ad- adapted. And then you just, uh, start the, the pounding or old man, uh, befriending. Now, in a realistically drawn prison, uh, your best way to do things that the, uh, warden doesn't want you to do, including escape, is to, uh, pick off the most corruptible, uh, guards and, uh, get them money or the promise of money or, uh, some other thing. And so, uh, uh, whether you are winning over a guard uh, who has sympathy for you uh, as, uh, you know, convincing them that you are, in fact, the innocent man in this jail, or whether you're just uh, looking for the uh, the most uh, corrupt guy in the uh, uh, prison in Brazil, uh, that's uh, pretty easy to, to do. And again, if you look for the, uh, the bearded guy uh, in a lot of, uh, you know, in the developing world, the Corruption of the prison is built into the system and is pretty uh, open it's and over. sort of the whole point of the prison, in fact. In, in fact, yes, that you are the uh, commodity uh, in the prison and that you are purchasing services from the people who run it. So uh, that your uh, way through this is to discover how the pre-existing system to move wealth from the families of the con- uh, convicted into the hands of the uh, uh, people running the prison. See how that works and, and do that. And uh, in the meantime, uh, you also figure out how to kidnap the uh, narco-terrorist who you are there to capture. And again, the uh, notion of figuring out who the corrupt or how the how the, the, the fiscal system of the prison works, that, you know, that's the Tower of London. That's how uh, the tutors use the tower is you would go in there and you could negotiate, a, a, you know, pro rata. Do, do you want a window? Do you want, you know, a chicken, you know, chicken or fish? You know, you set up your little menu of services and that had a cost. And the whole reason you were being tossed into prison instead of beheaded is that the queen or king wanted to mulk you of your fortune for a while. So lean into that. You know, those gold pieces are just uh, pretend gold pieces anyway. Well, you, the player, if you're the sort of player who uh, uh, becomes uh, uh, paralyzed with unhappiness when imprisoned, you may also be the kind of player who never wants to give up an imaginary gold piece. So, yes. again, think of what it is that your uh, GM is uh, uh, trying to put ahead of you. Look for the breadcrumbs. And if the requirement is that you uh, give up some of your gold, uh, well, either the GM made a mistake and needs to bleed you of some of your wealth, in which case the GM's going to do that. So you yeah. might as well let them try succeed on this first try instead of continuing to do it and do it until they uh, alter the your personal economy. Uh, but B, just as likely if you float the idea of, well, I'm going to you know, give up my uh, uh, ring of invisibility, but I'm going to make sure that as I give over my ring of invisibility that I know the face of the person that I'm giving it to because I am going to find that person again when I get on the other side so that you're laying a marker out for the GM that, yes, I'm willing to pay this toll for the moment, but guess what? I'm giving you another ball to play with GM and uh, giving you advance warning that uh, we also want to run the adventure where we get the ring back from the prison guards and, uh, you know, raid prison guard villa. 
right? And probably, you know, knock down the prison from the outside and let all of our friends out. Uh, yes, if, if, if we made friends. Yeah. Uh, and so make sure, if that's the case, that you don't go around going, I didn't get sent to prison to make friends. Yeah. Because uh, make friends, as we already pointed yeah. out. Right. Um, uh, other uh, uh, useful advice, and I think that in the sort of uh, oubliette situation where you are just tossed in there to be forgotten, like a, a slave in the Athenian silver mines or a, a Spartacus type situation or a man in the iron mask where you're dumped in. And the whole point is that you're never supposed to darken the towels of the state again. Uh, in those kinds of situations, you need to work on your internal resources uh, think about the things you can do to improve your character. You know, I'm digging silver. My strength has got to be going up. I'm doing yeah. whatever. Is there a training montage in here by Is any there chance? a training montage? Look for the Is training that montage. And then the, again, the, the, if the GM is a GM worth their salt, there is a tunnel that leads to a monster uh, through the silver mines. There is a um, uh, a, a secret uh, that you can learn uh, in in the prison from the, the the previous guy who carved it into the wall. Whatever it is, you are there for a reason. You are not there because the GM is trying to sideline you. If the GM was trying to sideline you, that's what overloading the uh, adding a second dragon to the encounter does, and then you just burned instead of sidelined. That makes much more sense. Yeah, if you want to sideline, you just make the guy in the hat in the tavern at the beginning just drone on for four hours. Right, yeah. Um, now, if you think <laughs> back of your, your classic escapes, uh, uh, wait for transport. Because, yes. of course, that's uh, when uh, your opportunity, uh, your cell may be impregnable, but there's all sorts of ways to escape if they are uh, taking you uh, to court or uh, to the gallows for maximum excitement, or just uh, you have to feign injury in it if you're in a uh, a prison where they actually want you alive for some reason, whether that's ransom or extracting information uh, from you, uh, that, uh, you know, if all of a sudden uh, you act as if your appendix is burst, they will need to take you somewhere so that you can be uh, uh, looked at by the prison doctor. And, of course, that's your fine uh, opportunity to escape. Or you can do sort of the Hannibal Lecter-style escape in the moving vehicle as they uh, take you from one location to another. And so, uh, and don't be afraid in this instance to uh, fast forward to the, uh, ask the GM to fast forward by saying, well, I wait until I'm being transported. And uh, again, the, the GM worth their salt will uh, do that. And then you can uh, execute uh, your brilliant plan. Yeah. You may also have uh, on your character sheet, either allies or some other way to affect the outside world, the network, uh, trait in uh, nice black agents. Um, you you may have uh, just straight up random hero points like in Savage Worlds, Benny's that you can spend to do things in the world. Spend them to have someone on the outside spring you, and that can either be a raid on the Gulag by uh, angry Cossacks. It can be a more powerful member of the establishment who says these are just the kind of strength eighteen magic users I need for my purposes. I'm going to pluck them from the prison where their enemies have put them and use them on a uh, uh, not as carefully calibrated as I would have liked quest. Um, you may have a situation where, uh, you've got, um, uh, people who can, uh, uh, arrange to hit the prison van when it's being transported. There may be a thing where all you do is just spend luck and sure enough, the bombers are overhead now and they blow up the, to the, the, the guard tower. And now's your chance to run out into the woods. Um, 
any number of things that you have either on a meta level or on a, a macro character level can be leveraged to get you out of prison. So uh, look to those. Maybe you haven't used them for a while and you've got a bunch of them stored up, or maybe the GM will let you go into favor debt by saying, yeah, I want the, uh, the, the, the Apaches to come bust me out of uh, the, um, uh, the, the prison yard at the fort. And yeah, I'll owe the Apaches a favor. What possibly could go wrong with that? And again, you're tossing the GM a ball that you can use uh, later. Um, and depending on the genre, if you're in a death trap genre, uh, a subset of waiting for transport is wait for the death trap. Because uh, <laughs> by definition, uh, the uh, the whole point of the death trap is to uh, give you an added uh, tick of danger. Uh, but that once you escape from the death trap, you're then almost you're inevitably able to then escape from your broader imprisonment and then go after uh, Blofeld or the uh, Riddler or whoever it is. So I think one of the, the keys of podcasting is to be able to escape from a segment uh, once you feel that the GM has trapped you in it. And uh, so let's go uh, get a bribe from this uh, commercial. And I bet on the other side of this segment, we'll have no idea that we were ever, ever imprisoned. Well, I have been talking to the guy with the longest beard in here. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The retinal scan and background check that you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment suggests that you're about to hear another installment of the Tradecraft Hut. This time around, Patreon backer Chris Sellers uh, points us to a news article back from the fall and asks us, to put a Delta Green slash Knights Black Agents spin on it. So let's, for those of us who aren't Chris Sellers, uh, look a bit at this uh, news story about how uh, agents of the American ATF operated a completely unaccountable slush fund full of money for a seven-year period. It went from 2006 to 2013, so uh, it covers... Uh, part of a Bush term and both Obama terms. This went on for. So what happened? Now the the T in ATF does not stand for turtle, no, or a tank engine. It 
stands for tobacco. And uh, so they, uh, you think, well, tobacco is a legal product and it's legally sold. Well, what's highly illegal, of course, is selling smuggled cigarettes without the heavy taxes on them that governments use both to discourage you from smoking and to increase uh, their revenues, uh, which is a contradiction to be explored in an unrelated segment. So <laughs> what happened is this uh, guy named Thomas Lesnack was on uh, the tobacco smuggling beat and what he decided to do is to essentially recruit as an asset a, a tobacco distributor and run and sort of control his warehouse and use that to draw in uh, various tobacco companies that were, uh, and, you know, it will surprise you folks that there's gambling in this casino, but it turns out <laughs> that major uh, cigarette manufacturers will happily become complicit with cigarette smuggling in order to uh, sell more cigarettes. They're perfectly happy to do that. And so what happened is basically it was a, it turned out to be kind of a, a private public enterprise uh, kind of off. Yeah. No one knew it was quite and, happening. And when you, and when you look at it as, as a, as, as just, as just that, that the government's like, well, let's, let's invest in this tobacco distributor. And it, it, it made money. I mean, I was amazed that it's it's a it's a generator of revenue, not a sucker upper of revenue. Even given the abominable amount of embezzlement that goes on uh, later on in the story, yes. not to spoilers, but um, well, but that I was, was like, the problem. It was making a ton of money, and they had to figure out what to do with it. And right. I guess there was a discussion where oh, so we well, found we found literally the one guy in the federal government who could run a business, and they put him in charge of illegal tobacco smuggling. Yes, and. Uh, <laughs> And so there was all this money coming in. It wasn't clear. Is, is this income stream legit or is it part of the criminal case? So let's just take any amount of money that might be connected with the criminal case and put it in the bank. Put it That's in a all fine and good. Except then it was like, and let's spend it. <laughs> <laughs> and so not only is it being spent, you know, you need a, a guy with uh, a sports car in order to be a convincing undercover agent. Well, to buy him a sports car. Uh, you know, you, you need a boat, let's buy him a boat, whatever it is. But also it's like, oh, well, you know, the main guy in the case, uh, Thomas Lesnack winds up, well, let's enrich myself personally. <laughs> let's yeah. put it in my like, bank Let's camp. buy the, um, uh, the old tobacco warehouse and, and give it to my church because that's what they want is a, yes. is, is a bigger, better church building. Yeah. That and, smells like tobacco. Right. And they, <laughs> you know, and they, he funneled, uh, money not only to the, to his church, but to like his kids' sports teams. Uh, yeah. Everyone gets an Xbox. Right. Which, you know, on the one hand, kids should, I guess, have Xboxes, but it shouldn't be from stolen government illegal slush funds that are never reported. I, I, I think that there's an ethical line that was crossed roughly around the part where you're giving, uh, the ATF slush funds to, uh, private citizens who are not actually trying to set up a sting. I mean, and again, yes, the ATF slush fund should definitely have been audited, but the reason that it existed is because, um, it's very hard to make a drug buy, uh, convincingly if you are showing up in a freaking, you know, government issue car wearing a government issue suit. Right. You don't look convincing and criminals, uh, who are idiots strategically certainly are not necessarily always idiots in the moment and will not believe that you are in fact a Barbadian uh, tobacco uh, smuggling magnate. If you, you know, drove up in a t Toyota Celica. Right. But you know, there's a reason why uh, things are accountable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and in fact, this was discovered yes. by an accountant who uh, spotted uh, all of these uh, anomalies. And that's what led to the unraveling right. of the case. They were engaged in investigating a Paraguayan tobacco magnate. And in order to investigate him, they had to buy his cigarettes 
because they were investigating for smuggling his cigarettes into America. So the thinking goes, and you can just sort of put your own thinking uh, caps on and follow this. He's smuggling cigarettes into America and not paying taxes. If we're going to monitor this, we'd better be his mules into America and then sell them on to people who won't pay taxes. (laughs) (laughs) And this should go on for years. So we can build enough evidence yes. that that's what he's doing. And so the accountant, the accountant of the company yeah. who's, uh, who they're partnered with, he's a new accountant and he's hired and he comes and he says, we have a lot of Paraguayan cigarettes in the warehouse. What's that about? And someone's, oh, that's the ATF part of the warehouse. And he's like, the what now? And <laughs> they show him the books and he says, this is horrifically illegal and I don't want our company to get dragged into court as aiding and abetting a Paraguayan cigarette smuggling ring. So the tobacco company raids the ATF. They send in company security and seize all the stuff and lock it down and report it to the Department of Justice. And of course, the Department of Justice does nothing whatsoever. There has never been a government indictment. It's not fair uh, to say they do nothing. They actively cover it up. Come on. That's true. In fairness, in fairness, they do move rapidly to try and threaten the people who reveal it. So that is something that they do. But the, but there's never been an audit. There's never been anyone being punished. Uh, Lesnack doesn't leave his job. He retired with his full pension. The, the guys who worked for the company and were the main sort of, uh, bag men for the slush fund, they were fired. But of course, on the other hand, they have $24 million of embezzled money to fall back on. The tobacco company is suing them, but the government, oh no, the government's doing nothing whatsoever. Yes. Good well, old government. Lesson here is if you're going to steal, steal from the government because they'll be too <laughs> embarrassed to prosecute you. Right. That's what you do. Right. And presumably also seized at some point was the whiteboard with the bullet points where they said, <laughs> bullet point, go undercover, bullet point two, get in too deep. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> uh, how does this turn into a, uh, a plot device? It's exciting enough already, but it doesn't have any, uh, many guns no and certainly it. no Cthulhu's in it yet. So how do we turn this into a, a plot point, uh, in Fall of Delta Green or add a vampire or two to make it part of Night's Black Agents? I mean, to begin with, you can say that something like this, because this is, you know, you swap out t- tobacco for heroin, and this is what people have accused the CIA of doing since the sixties is basically facilitating the importation of heroin in order to on the one hand, keep a track on what's going into the country illegally, but on the other hand, to have a giant slush fund that no one can tap or audit. And so any government agency could, in theory, have a similar slush fund if you needed it for Fall of Delta Green or for Knights Black Agents. And in fact, you could have this slush fund being run by the uh, conspiracy that is embedded itself within uh, DARPA or CDC or whatever, that they're running a similar sort of a thing, a public-private partnership that because of um, uh, either government immunity or whatever else, they can operate uh, on, on an illegal basis. And so if it's DARPA, they're importing, you know, uh, Ill- illegally made semiconductors or something and selling them on at a giant profit without paying the tariff. Or if they're um, uh, the CDC, pharmaceuticals can be coming in from overseas for analysis purposes and then being shared out with your buddies and sold on the black market and fueling the opioid crisis, if that's how you want to do it. That sounds like something vampires would be doing. So that uh, slush fund can begin as the way that you've been getting all of your awesome machine guns as a Delta Green agent or as a a vampire conspiracy fighting um, uh, FBI man. And then you're like, oh, this slush fund is actually run by the vampires. And that's why they always know when we show up 
with these guns is because we've literally been buying it from them like dummies. And right. that you can provide you with um a moment of of discovery in a nice black agents game and a Delta Green game, all it is is yet another thing you have to cover up. It can be just a plausible source of your thing or because you're working with smugglers, you're working with people who do illicit stuff on the coast. Maybe there's a Cthulhu connection. Maybe these uh, tobacco smugglers are also uh, bringing stuff into various sunken coves in New England or sunken coves in the Gulf Coast South. It's, it's all a cover for antiquity smuggling. Uh, and, of course, they're the kind of antiquities you use to uh, writhe around orgiastically during your summoning rituals. Like you do. In Knights Black Agents, the heroic company accountant who discovers... Uh, what's going on in the other half of the warehouse could be the person that, that at the beginning uh, that you're tasked to protect and then why you get burned, uh, you know, because they, the vampires want to uh, take uh, care of that guy. And in Delta Green, you could be assigned to wax that guy. And, uh, you know, you're assured that, of course, he's a an accountant for a, a major heroin smuggling operation. And then you get there and find out that he's a whistleblower who works for a tobacco warehouse. And then you have to... Uh, decide just how much of a company person you are. Right. And, and whether or not, you know, doing this favor for the ATF or CIA or whoever it is will get you enough leverage to be able to use them on an investigation that you really do need. Because in the moment, it would be easy for players to say, well, I'm not going to murder that guy. That's wrong. But if you've already presented it as the CIA is like, oh, no, we'll we'll call in a, a predator strike on whatever you want. You know, we don't care. It's foreign parts that we do. We do that before breakfast. Um, but we need you to whack this guy because we can't do it on domestic soil. And you guys are just crazy murderers. And, right. and so you're like, oh man, we really do want to have that predator drone strike on the nameless city in Saudi Arabia, but we really don't want to murder this accountant, but maybe we do because he's probably connected to some kind of illegal business. I don't know. And make it a, make it a choice. Make it part of that sacrifice you have to make or don't. And, decide, right. and then everything that comes out of the nameless city is kind of on you because you didn't destroy it when you could have. Or make it a, a consequence of less than thorough investigation, right? So that there is ample opportunity to find out that he's uh, not who he's claimed to be before you whack him. Uh, but you may or may not take that story thread and go uh, check that out. So that if, if you don't do all the legwork and you just go ahead and whack him, well, then you discover uh, who he really was. And then it's all on you already because you didn't... Uh, you didn't do the investigative thing that right. uh, Gumshoe and then you could, uh, assumes you're And then you could fictionalize it and say that the Justice Department is actually interested in justice and wants to know why this guy <laughs> was killed. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes, you could have... Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's a little crazier than Cthulhu or vampires, but what the heck, let's run with yeah. it. Or you, can make, or, you know, make a bureaucracy spend to know <laughs> which uh, person in the Department of Justice is the one you don't go to because they're the maverick whistleblower who's going to... Uh, blow everything mm. up as opposed to, no, you should go to, you know, this, uh, this gray tired, uh, cog in the machine who's going to help cover up what you've done. Uh, well, <laughs> on, on that note, I think it's time for us to, uh, uh, before we're caught out, head on in, uh, to our next segment, which of course is always a journey we make via a commercial.
Do you love beautiful, evocative fantasy maps redolent of medieval Italy? In sales technique, we call that an invitation for the listener to say yes. Because the latest Ask the Gown Kickstarter has what you seek. The Summerland City Map Project. Navigate Joe Dever's World of Magnamund, the setting for the Lone Wolf game books. Made by cartographer Francesco Mattioli in close collaboration with Joe. And with Vincent Lazzari, devoted keeper of the Lone Wolf Flame. Born of Francesco's dream of creating city maps celebrating Lone Wolf and medieval Bologna. Are you saying that he based them on Earth? That's a yes, sayer of the saying, base it on Earth. Why, then, even if Lone Wolf is not your deal, you could use these stunning maps as a resource for any medieval or fantasy setting. You could not have said it better yourself. Choose between a single map of Holmgard or the collection of all ten maps. Follow the link in the show notes to the Simulan City Map Kickstarter. Help this podcast escape its shackles alongside such backers as... Kevin J. Maroney. Mark Giles. Matt Bellara. Rich Renallo. And Scott Stefanski. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Michael Manavel asks Ken and Robin, how would you go about Scooby-Doo gaming? Um, well, how I would go about Scooby-Doo gaming is write Bubblegum Shoe with, <laughs> with, um, uh, Emily Kerboss and Lisa Steele and then have, uh, Bree Sheldon, uh, contribute a, a drift that involves having a wacky cartoon sidekick and then write cool trap rules for it, which is what I did, and that's your Scooby-Doo gaming. How would you go about Scooby-Doo gaming, Robin? Well, uh, I would, uh, first of all, uh, in addition to all of those fine things, I guess the the question you have to encounter, first of all, is, well, I guess there's two questions. Uh, let me see which one goes first. First question is who you're running the game for. Um, right. So are you running this game for kids who like Scooby-Doo for, uh, for what it is to kids. And the second choice is, are you running it for, uh, adults who have an ironic perspective on Scooby-Doo and are looking for its ritual elements to be invoked or detourned or, or detourned. Um, and then the next question after that is, are you doing uh, classic Scooby-Doo as, uh, those of us who are as, as gray as Ken and I, uh, recall from our, our youth or, a more up-to-date Scooby-Doo in which they've crossed the barrier and now there are supernatural elements in Scooby-Doo. It's not always now a property developer in a rubber mask. Sometimes there's actually zombies. Right, and, yeah. And I guess the distinction there is that back in the old days, it was considered the kids needed a square up at the end where they wouldn't still be scared of the monsters because you would find out uh, that they were property developers and also that, you know, so there's nothing really to be scared of, kids. There's nothing nightmarish. There's nothing really going on. And so, A, it taught you an important uh, suspicion of property developers, which, uh, uh, you know, we I think we've lost a little in our culture and need to, need to re-embrace. Today's kids, though, of course, have been exposed to so much horror and scary stuff that they're just, you know, hold my root beer. You know, they're, <laughs> they're happy right. to have uh, zombies and stuff show up. And from a gaming point of view, it's certainly leaves a bigger question hanging over events if the monster might actually possibly uh, be real or maybe not may still be mm. somebody in a mask. So uh, that, that does, that does um, sort of uh, spin it up. I mean, you can get a long way with a formula because in theory, the, is it a monster? Is it a monster? Oh no, it's old man withers is no more formulaic than is it the wind? Is it the wind? Oh no, it's Cthulhu. 
which is the basic formula of Call of Cthulhu is that you go in believing it's a monster and no one else believes it's a monster and you reveal, haha, it's a monster. Oh, I was nearly killed. In Scooby-Doo, they go in, everyone believes it's a monster. They're, they're kids skeptics and they reveal that it's old man withers. And so the, the formula of it is not the problem. What I think the is the problem is, the is that's, that's what you're going toward. That's why you, why you've decided to play Scooby-Doo if you're an adult and are aware of such a thing as trucks. Right. And-, and, and, and so I think that the, the problem is that, um, it seems harder to invent, mo- you know, normal people villains than it does to invent crazy Cthulhu things. Cause there's a billion million monsters and a billion million gods and a billion million spells and a billion million tomes. And you can know it's not the Shoggoth with the candlestick in the conservatory. It's the deep ones with the candlestick in the conservatory. And you can just go bananas. Whereas at some point you run out of uh, guys who run the haunted amusement park or uh, property right. developers. You, you need a whole bunch of different people right. who have a motivation to scare people away from a place. With a ridiculous uh, urban supernatural legend urban legend. Mass. But then again, presumably, you know, your Scooby-Doo campaign arc is not going to go as long as the Hermitage Files. <laughs> or or as, even as long as Scooby-Doo did, right. um, you know, given that it's still going uh, off and on, like, 50 years after it started, something right. like that. Now, in Bree's uh, Drift, is there, like, a mechanical reward for splitting up the party in the middle? Uh, no, because there's, uh, the, 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 her drift is mostly uh, the introduction of the of the cartoon sidekick. And the way that you play Scooby, which is the fun part, and everyone gets to sort of play them together, and that's that's her uh, her her mechanical contribution. There is it is not a full on recreate um, uh, the three act Scooby Doo model uh, that it might be, right. be, mostly because of page constraints. Yeah, um, and and life. <laughs> but yes, I agree. You should have a mechanical reward for splitting the party in a proper full on Scooby Doo emulator. Yeah, so that you would not get to make your investigative spends, or you know, you would. Your points would only refresh when you, not at the beginning of the adventure, but at, when you're deep enough in the adventure that you split up in the, in the haunted house and, uh, you would, uh, you know, need, you know, to, to use the standard protocols, uh, for, you know, what you are and aren't allowed to say when your characters are off stage and, uh, find a way. I would actually have, I admit that my Hanna-Barbera fandom is not my biggest fandom. So I would have to go <laughs> back and find out, you know, what are, uh, Fred and uh, and Velma and, and Daphne actually ever doing anything interesting except just getting out of the way so that Shaggy and Scooby can meet ghosts. Well, Velma finds the clues. Fred is the leader. Daphne, I forget what Daphne, I think Daphne does something. I mean, she's not a, a waste of space. And it's not like Shaggy and Scooby actually contribute either. Like Velma is really sort of carrying all of them on, on her back as far as I'm yes. concerned. I was always a Velma stan and remain a Velma stan, That's frankly. why people identify with Velma. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, even though if, if you looked objectively at my life, you might consider me more of a Shaggy than a Velma. I'm not going to say you're wrong, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I certainly thought that she got a, a rough you deal. glasses and go to the library and learn up the lore. You're, I, I you're do totally that. And Velma also can. I lay around with my pet and eat. So it's sort of a Velma Shaggy, uh, uh, multi-class. Right. Uh, anyhow, right. <laughs> I don't so, know where that so, came from. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you would have to sort of identify what all of the, you know, iconic actions are that your d- different characters are allowed to take. And of course, mm-hmm. whether you're literally playing the Scooby-Doo characters or you're playing new characters in an homage to the structure. I and mean, I guess in the story, Daphne's job is to trigger the trap, but that's, uh, that's not super cool for the, 
for the um uh, for, for for today's uh, kids as a role model, and it's a fairly boring character choice. I, I right. think it's, in, in it's, a game, it's you you would need to back off. I think from you do the super structuralist approach for adults who are interested in the irony of playing with the the tightness of that structure. And I mean, one the, of the things that you could do, and again, this is something you would need to do, especially if you're doing a mundane game. There's a in, in the classic Scooby Doo, they go to the place, they're sort of locked into it or, or trapped on it, and then they run around until they build a trap and, and get Old Man Withers. But in a role playing version, you want to open that structure out a little bit and do more people investigating. I think uh, Daphne would make a great face because. Um, she's super cute and everyone likes her. And so she would be able to go out and talk to the neighbors of the amusement park. Or she'd be able to talk to the, the people who were frightened, uh, by the, by the glowing sea monster or whatever and get some, uh, some sort of human details. I, I think that that would be a great role for her in a, in a role playing game. Right. And because you want to split that up a bit, uh, there's also a different group of people that Fred would get along with and could, uh, right. through his commanding blonde handsomeness. Right. Uh, and, and Fred and, also, um, can be, um, sort of like if you again, if you're building this out, it can be like the warlord in uh, fourth edition, where by deploying the the team and splitting them up, Fred gains the team more points. Right, he could his, be the provider of morale leadership. and uh, uh, Benny's and and so right. forth. And then finally, uh, if you are doing the ironic version for adults, you have an ability for other people, for guest players, to sit in on the game and play 1970s celebrities. Uh, because oh, it, yeah. there was a whole run of Scooby-Doo where they had cartoon versions of B-list celebrities voicing themselves. Uh, and so you could have, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters. You, the, your extra player plays the Harlem Globetrotters one week and then Phyllis Diller the next week and uh, Rowan and Martin the next week. And they had Batman and Robin one time. Oh, well, there you go. There's a And that's sort of off-model to have yeah. other fictional characters uh, yeah. to show up in. Uh, well, the, the, Har- the Harlem Globetrotters are kind of fictional. I mean, when, when they showed up, they were, that, that they were playing true. the mythic Harlem Globetrotters, not the actual Harlem Globetrotters. They're on the cosmic bridge between fact and fiction. <laughs> so at any rate, I think that's uh, initially as far as we would go without actually being uh, paid more money to actually do it. Uh, but that's the kind of issues that we would uh, consider. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think it's time for us to go have some Scooby Snacks. And then, uh, I'm pretty sure our next segment is in, in a haunted house that has been, uh, that's a heritage site that, uh, some people want to have raised. So nothing bad can go uh, wrong there. No, no. I mean, the only thing that we know about that is that, um, at one point, uh, the owner angered a, uh, tiki god from the South Pacific and it's said to stalk and kill those who spend, uh, the night, but. That's probably just superstition, Robin. Probably just superstition, and and the tiki god is distractingly rubbery as well. Yeah, well, that's that's the worst part of the haunting is he keeps banging his head into things and saying, "Ow, my head." <laughs> this <laughs> we may never get out of this. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. 
and Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our chrono hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And before we get to the uh, time assignment that we've been given by Patreon backer Daniel Feidelman, Time Incorporated, uh, the the very highest echelons, uh, has asked us to pass a memo along to our beloved uh, Patreon backers, because there's been uh, something of a uh, a premise drift. Uh, so, Ken, perhaps you could uh, summarize the contents of the memo. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of great work, Ken. Couldn't do it without you. Raises summarize, praise for everybody. Summarize, Ken. Lots of stuff. Um, but the fundamental sort of uh, point that they wish to raise is that Ken's time machine is meant to fix and change history, not to implicate Ken in a series of exotic crimes and murders. So the part uh, where we say, how did Ken use Agatha Christie's disappearance, which is the thing that maybe got them uh, thinking about it, it, to change uh, it with his time machine, would perhaps have been a better question for a history hut or even an elliptony hut in which it's, what's the deal with Agatha Christie's disappearance? And you say, Ken, how would the world have been different if Agatha Christie had not written a mystery, and how would mystery fiction have changed? And my time machine could investigate what would have to happen to Agatha Christie to make her not write mysteries, or what would have happened to the field of mystery fiction. So time machines are for changing, folding, bending, spindling, and even mutilating history, whereas time tourism uh, is not what they are for, according to our superiors at Time Incorporated. Right. So we have a bunch of questions on hand, uh, and if they fit the... A profile that Ken just mentioned where they don't really propose an alternate timeline. Uh, we're going to move them either to History Hut or perhaps to uh, Elliptony Hut or some other hut. So your pre-existing time machine questions will still be treasured and, and clasped to our bosoms and still remain in the queue, but they won't, uh, we're going to reframe them so that they're not Ken's time machine. So Ken's time right. machine. We're going to is, alter history so that you ask them about the History Hut. Exactly. Uh, so, so that will explain what will happen if we slightly reframe your existing questions. And, uh, and, and that you means, don't have to pose the alternate history. You can simply say, what would happen if, and fact, leave it to me to explore that. That is Ken's job, right? right. So, uh, some of the questions, uh, that we get do actually start answering the questions, uh, which is more work than you need to do, Patreon backers. Um, so let's get to a model question in which proposes an alternate history. Uh, Daniel Feidelman asks, Who would you need to get drunk in order to ensure that the United States would include some states dominated by Native Americans, as envisioned originally by some of the founding fathers? So, Ken, I guess the first question is, which founding fathers envisioned that? Who thought that was going to happen? Um, Benjamin Franklin, at, at over his very long and storied career, at one point suggested that uh, some of the Western states might remain majority Indian. Um, George Washington, who perhaps uh, knew a little bit more about the West, thought it was still possible that the Indian tribes could remain as enclaves 
uh, that were allied nations to America, sort of protectorates, but that they would not be like an Indian state of Ohio, but that like the Indians in uh, Northwest Ohio would get to stay uh, as an Indian enclave that would be affiliated with the federal government um, as uh, in sort of like a better version or a bigger version, at least of the reservation system, which right. is what with, eventually with actual self government, right? With actual self government, with actual ability to you know interact on an economic basis with their surroundings, because George Washington recognized that there was no stopping white westward expansion. That there simply there there was a hundred thousand Indians uh, between the Appalachians and the Mississippi in Washington's uh, first term. There was about a hundred thousand whites there already by eighteen hundred. Not even. By like by one presidential term later, there would be half a million whites across the Appalachians. So the 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 demographic pressures and the greed for land, uh, which are basically one and the same thing, would have been very very bad for the Indians, regardless. But if uh, Washington's vision of federal protection for Indian enclaves could have been uh, reified, then uh, we might not have had things like the Trail of Tears. We might not have had. Uh, the, the reservation model itself might have been more humanely administered and involve self-government and at least some level of um, independent action for uh, Indian nations in North America. Now, again, even George Washington couldn't get that done because someone said, all right, you're going to have to pay an awful lot of money to keep all the settlers out of this land and mobilize the army to fight fellow Americans an awful lot. And it's not just going to be a whiskey rebellion type situation. It's going to be really big news. And Washington basically uh, was, you know, frustrated a by Congress and then by everybody else, um, not for the first or last time in his life. And so he sort of would, you know, did what he could, but the presidency was a deliberately limited executive office. There was no federal budget to speak of. And um, uh, what there was, was needed on things that the rest of the country thought were more important than protecting Indians. So that's what happened. So how do you make that unhappen or unhappen differently? Well, this is going to be one of those sort of artisanal time changes where there's a lot of time involved because you probably have to get a lot of people drunk. But the first, and I think maybe the one of the key people to get drunk is a guy named Sir William Johnson. And Sir William Johnson uh, did the Iroquois Confederacy the great disservice of being an honest, fair-minded, and capable Indian ally. <laughs> and by doing that, he basically talked them into fighting on the side of the British, the hated British specifically, in the Revolutionary War. And because they fought on the side of the hated British, George Washington got to sort of exercise the left hand of his Indian policy, which is send General Sul Sullivan to burn every town in the Iroquois Confederacy to the ground, uh, which is why his uh, I think it's his Tuscarora name is uh, Burner of Towns. Maybe it's his Onondaga name. It's one of his Mo uh, uh, Iroquois Confederacy tribes named him Burner of Towns because of that policy. And it was the war that the Iroquois fought against the Americans that sort of allowed the uh, Continental Congress uh, and the Confederation Congress to say, well, they were our enemies in war. That means we conquered them. That means their land is ours. That means too bad, Indians. Take a number because you're going to get shot just as soon as we can figure out a way to do it. And that is sort of the foundational policy of the America versus the Indians, really from the 1620s, but certainly ever since the revolution. Uh, the same uh, thing happened again with the Cher Cherokee and again with the Shawnee. Uh, the, there were British agents who were um, in, in neither case as moral or as, uh, as, as honest as, uh, William Johnson, but we're still, you know, 
pointing out that uh, we are too far to take your land. The Americans are right here. They want to take your land. But if you could have prevented William Johnson from befriending and indeed marrying into the family of Joseph Brandt, uh, Thyandanega, the sort of uh, chief of the Mohawks, paramount chief of the Mohawks, and also a very influential figure in the whole Iroquois Confederacy, if you could have prevented him from being an enthusiastic supporter of the British and either kept the Iroquois neutral or, and this is where it would take a lot of people getting a lot of drunk, probably including Joseph Brandt, frankly, you could get the Iroquois to fight on the side of the Americans and ambush the British as they're coming down uh, through New York for Saratoga or going around uh, via the um, uh, Mohawk Valley that uh, the, the British did indeed send St. Leger through uh, Iroquois country to get, uh, in fact, beaten by the Americans at Oriskany. But still, it would have been, I think, a, a solid if the Indians had fought, uh, the Iroquois had fought with the Americans. Then at the end now, of the war... does Time Incorporated allow you, Ken, to show uh, people you go back and visit what the timeline currently looks like? Would you be able to show a history book and lay out the consequences? I think I was allowed to do that uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I was allowed uh, to do it at one other point. We've In in previous time uh, incorporated continuity, I believe I've done it. So that might indeed be what it would take. And Joseph Brandt, by the way, a a really impressive figure because he's comfortable in Iroquois – society. He's comfortable in frontier American society. He's comfortable in London. He's very, very cosmopolitan, very broad-minded, uh, terrific fellow. I mean, super smart, uh, an excellent uh, military leader, given the resources that he had. Because remember, the Mohawk tribe or Mohawk nation, by the time of the revolution, had less than 600 warriors because uh, they'd uh, been gone through a smallpox epidemic and there was uh, the French and Indian War had killed a big chunk of them the last time they helped the hated British. So, uh, the, he was really sort of playing a very bad hand amazingly well. Right. And he's one of the most impressive people ever in North American history. He has a town named after him. He's the, uh, Brantford, Ontario is named after him, which is. There you go. If and you've if you been can to get Brantford, him, a, a sort of a dirty and, trick. And he hated, um, uh, uh, your, your buddy Simcoe. So there's your, your, uh, your problem. The Canadian governments tended not to like Joseph Brandt and vice versa. When he met Guy Carleton, who was the very, very competent, very, very excellent British governor of Quebec after um, uh, during the, the revolution, Guy Carleton hated him because he thought he was a filthy savage. And he hated Guy, Guy Carleton because he thought Guy Carleton was a snob. Um, they, were, they were half right in that Guy Carleton was a snob. But that is the sort of interaction that I think if you could have his British Indian agents be Guy Carlton instead of William Johnson. Now you're talking because now it's like, Oh, look at that. Joseph Brandt is uh, being treated badly by the, by the uh, Canadian uh, uh, British government and nicely by these guy that by this weirdly uh, florid, strangely accented drinking American who keeps showing up. Um, and I, I, it would almost be an artisanal slow turn of Joseph Brandt to, uh, pro-Americanness because the, uh, Iroquois Confederacy, when the war broke out, they said, Hey, remember that last war that we got into and we lost all but 600 of our warriors? Let's just sit this one out and let the white people kill each other, which, you know, while the smart tactical play is still the bad strategic play because the American government's attitude then as, la- as now is what have you done for me lately? So. And, uh, is that land you're standing on valuable? Exactly. And so the, uh, the, the key would be to have them be co-belligerents. Uh, associated states sign a treaty with the Americans during the war of alliance. Ideally, you get the same thing with the Cherokees who are an even harder job because Dragon Canoe, the, the chief of the Cherokees at the time is 
uh, if uh, he is much more of a, um, uh, a militant guy than Joseph Brandt was, uh, and did not at all uh, approve of white settlement. And so you'd have to probably switch around the Cherokee leadership so that you got someone who was at the very least willing to stay n- neutral and perhaps even would fall on the, um, uh, the Tory settlements, which in Georgia and North Carolina were in the back country. So you could possibly have set up a Cherokee raid on Tory settlements. Uh, that might have given the Cherokees a similar, uh, co-belligerent status. But again, again, it would be a lot of work and you'd have to get a lot of people drunk and you'd have to keep a lot of other people away from it because, as I mentioned, that demographic pressure is not going away. Right. So I think we had it, didn't we have a previous Ken's time machine where you decided that the trail of tears could at best be softened rather than prevented? Yeah, there's a, there, it's a very similar case. And the, the Cherokees, like I say, are a much tougher case because in an addition to everything else that they have, they had the misfortune to sit on the only gold mine in the South. So the, the, the you combine land rush and gold rush, you are really dealing with a, a powerful degree of of momentum. George Washington, uh, uh, for example, wanted the federal government to buy every Indian a plow so that they would be farmers. And then they would suddenly be part of the farm agricultural economy of North America and uh, once they have land rights and title and are behaving in every other way as, as white people, it might be harder to chase them off their land. Obviously, Andrew Jackson figured out a way to do it, but if it had started in the Washington administration, maybe the, there could have been enough, s- uh, social momentum that the allied Indian nations at least stay part of the American, um, uh, uh political structure and are not simply, uh, uh, decimated and, and driven onto, uh, reservations to be penned up. Right. So at least partial assimilation also seems to be uh, part of this uh, alternate timeline, which is also not necessarily the thing we're rooting for. No. And, and, and again, it's, it's absolutely what would have been necessary because in terms of uh, density of settlement, if you don't farm the land, you can't maintain a big population on it. That's just the way math works. Uh, it's, and certainly if you don't have a uh, bigger, um, uh, more intensely uh, farmed uh, country like the uh, like the Americans wanted, and instead are just doing sort of the um, subsistence farming that a lot of the uh, tribes in the South uh, East were doing, then you can't maintain it. And the 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 five civilized tribes realized that uh, early on and began that farming process and began to try and create their own Indian version of an agricultural civilization or a not an agricultural, so they've been agricultural forever, but a, uh, an Indian version of modern agricultural civilization down to and including slave labor. And for their pains, they got the trail of tears. So you'd have to start that process generations earlier. Um, maybe the Cherokee gold mine gets found early and the Cherokees, uh, give Washington the money to buy everyone a plow. Maybe that's how it works. I'm not sure. Again, like I said. Right. So really, this is one of those ones where you have to uh, do what you sometimes do and bring in genre elements to Ken's time machine and like, you know, bring forth some snake people from the mounds of Yig to <laughs> yes. change the time stream because just the, the social forces of the Anglo-American productivity revolution uh, coming up against uh, the, uh, these cultures, uh, without, uh, you know, it's more than just getting people drunk, sadly. Right. Yeah. Getting people drunk is more of the problem than it is the solution in this case. But the Iroquois, I think are your, are your strongest possible bet because they are certainly the most recognizable form of government to white America at the time. 
even in the day, uh, Benjamin Franklin and others gave lip service to the Iroquois Confederacy is if these Indians can do it, how come we can't unify and be awesome like the Indians are? Um, and that was a pro- more propaganda than model. Uh, sadly, the notion that uh, James Madison based the Constitution on the great law of peace is uh, a, a myth, although I'm sure James Madison had no particular objection to the great law of peace. He based it pretty clearly on Montesquieu and Locke and the Roman Republic, and that's just where it came from. But the Iroquois as an example and a model and a goad was a very real presence in the American founders' minds. And if they had been fighting on our side against the hated British, maybe they could have parlayed that into, at the very least, um, a co-prosperity sphere with the state of New York. Well, it looks like a, a co-prosperity sphere is about as good as we're going to get. And you know what happens when we erect a co-prosperity sphere? That means our work here is done once again. So, folks, uh, we're going to wave goodbye to you all as, uh, and get back on Ken's time machine and back into our timeline, and uh, we'll rejoin you uh, with more excitement next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Divert your favorite slush fund to the care and feeding of this podcast with backers exactly like... Ariel Celeste. Derek Heimforth. Fred Kish, John Kingdon, and Lewis R. Evans. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Get ready for your next trip to 1763 with the Time Incorporated shirt. Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>